Hello and welcome to Capital A, Unauthorized Opinions on Art and Money. Today, I want to pick up a thread that I dropped a few episodes back at the end of episode 7, when I promised to talk about post-scarcity and degrowth, two ambitious visions that have come out in recent years for how to alternatively structure human society. Especially from the point of view of our economics today, both of these theories have in them elements which sound strange, beyond the pale, downright science fictional and fantastical. And this actually makes them quite fun to talk about, but the truth is, I'm not particularly interested in either degrowth or post-scarcity as futurology, as practical blueprints for a world to come. Rather, what draws me to them is that both of them are brave attempts to unthink some of the basic tenets of economic orthodoxy. The way I see it, economics, the kind of mainstream economics that defines our worldview today and tells us what is and is not possible, is kind of like a runaway engine driving us towards extinction. We know that something is wrong, but we don't know how to stop the momentum of this extractive economy that seems to have a will of its own. And the tragedy of our age is that deep down inside somewhere we have accepted that this calamity, this looming ecological catastrophe, is inevitable. This is why I'm interested in post-scarcity and degrowth. I'm interested in them as two attempts to say, well, something must be wrong in our assumptions here if this is leading us to ruin. Two exercises in unthinking the parameters of the possible. Two alternatives to extinction. And when you think about them that way, as systems of doubt... One of the interesting things that you notice is that they are fundamentally opposed not only to the system that we have right now, but also to each other. Not only does each of these systems begin by challenging a different baseline assumption of mainstream economics, but what's more, the fundamental insight of the one contradicts the fundamental insight of the other. How that opposition works and the picture of the world that each of these ideas paints is what I want to get into today. This will be part three of a three-episode arc that began in episode six, continued in episode seven, and now finishes today with capital A, episode 10, A Tale of Two Tomorrows. When I took my first economics class in high school, the teacher gave us this very basic definition of what economics is and what it tries to do, which is that 
Economics is the study of how finite resources are apportioned to meet infinite demand. Post-scarcity wants to make this very basic principle of economics obsolete. Now, scarce resources have been a fundamental fact throughout human history. You can't just make an infinite supply of pencils, bushels of apples, computers, because there are limits to your material resources and your labor resources. The fundamental insight of post-scarcity is that there is a new kind of product on the market which breaks with this age-old truth. That product is data. And what distinguishes data is the fact that once you produce it, it is practically free to reproduce in any quantity you want. So while I may not have the resources in my New York City apartment to grow enough apples to feed everyone on Earth, if I were to make this audio file that you're listening to right now free to download, there would be enough supply of that product to meet the demand of anyone and everyone on the planet who wanted a copy. And you might say, so what? So you can make as many copies of your iTunes track as you want to. Why is that important? Well, it's important for two reasons. First, it means that an enormous portion of our global economy these days is dependent on the sale of products which would be free for the company that's selling them to give away. Think of an iTunes track. If you wanted to purchase an iTunes track, which is something I know that we haven't really done for years because we all go on Spotify and stream it, but if you wanted to purchase a copy of an iTunes track, you can still go onto iTunes and pay 99 cents to download it. Ask yourself, why does that track cost 99 cents to download? Does that price, 99 cents, reflect some material or labor component that went into its production? No. That price is set arbitrarily. That price is going into Apple's pocket. It's not even going, really, to pay the artists and the audio engineers and the label that spent so much money producing that data in the first place. They get a tiny, tiny little fraction of the sale of that track. Some of that does reflect Apple's overhead and operating costs, but none of it is accounted for by the cost of reproducing it so that you can have your own copy. You're paying them for something it would cost them nothing to give away for free. In his book, Post-Capitalism, journalist Paul Mason repeatedly says that data wants to be free. Once it has been created, all data is basically free to give away in any quantity that you want, and the fact that we still have to pay for it does not reflect what it costs to produce that data in the first place. Oftentimes, the original producers of the data are barely getting a cut of your money at all. Instead, what the price that you pay for your data reflects is a system of patent, copyright, and intellectual property law that has been set up for one purpose only, to make artificially scarce that which is naturally abundant. And I know, of course, that the idea behind copyright and intellectual property law is that it exists to protect the rights of the creators of new ideas 
so that they can enjoy the fruits of their labor, to incentivize people to produce new stuff and make new discoveries. Just hold off on that objection for a moment. We'll get back to it in a few minutes. The second big reason that this is all important is because data isn't just about iTunes tracks. Data is such an integral part of the global economy these days that even the cost of producing the most physical things, like, say, airplane parts, is accounted for in large parts by bits of data that the producer has to purchase or create. Data like stress tests, risk statistics, the design itself. If you're in the business of making airplanes, you have to pay to either produce or purchase these bits of data as surely as you have to pay for the man hours, the material components, and the machines that make the physical parts. So here we come to the proposition of post-scarcity. What post-scarcity asks us to imagine is what would happen if we were to take all that data that is naturally abundant and set it free. What would the world look like if we were to tap into data's potential? What post-scarcity asks us to imagine is a world where all of the data that goes into the subway cars, the agricultural techniques, the software, the computers, all of that data were suddenly taken and made free to anyone who wanted to download it and use it and build on it. In that world, the cost of producing things would suddenly plummet because a major component of the cost structure of even our most physical products would suddenly have been made free. Furthermore, because having access to existing data is a critical component of innovating new technologies, if all the world's data were suddenly made available for free, not only would the cost of producing the stuff we already have plummet, but the cost of inventing new stuff would likewise plummet. In other words, the efficiency of technological innovation itself would increase. Now it's at this point that the imagination around post-scarcity begins to approach the utopian and the science fictional. Typically, as proponents of post-scarcity look down the road into the future, they imagine the free availability of data coinciding with dramatic developments in 3D printing technology. As new and more efficient designs for products become available for free to download online, anyone who owns one of these advanced 3D printers would be able to produce basically any physical object that human beings have invented right in the comfort of their own homes and only for the cost of the material components that go into the 3D printer to make that object. Pretty soon, the only limit to the economy becomes the availability of the raw materials that 3D printers use. These raw materials are also the only thing that you still have to pay for. You don't have to pay for the designs because being data, they are free. And you don't have to pay for labor hours because you have a 3D printer in your home that can manufacture anything you need. You barely even have to pay for that 3D printer because being a physical object, it can just be produced by other 3D printers. So the only thing that you are paying for at this point is the material components of the things that you are creating. Eventually, the availability of those material components will be the only limit left to the growth of the economy. That is to say, the scarcity of natural resources on the planet Earth. At that point, if you want to keep growing your economy, you would have to, 
leave the confines of the planet to uh, mine for minerals in the asteroid belt, suck up gases in the outer solar system, experiment with hydroponic farming in orbital space stations. And the idea is that ultimately, as mining and farming technologies improve and supply chains become stronger, just the efficiency of all these systems combine to make the cost of even those material components come down to almost nothing. That's the end game of post-scarcity. It's a world where technology and the free availability of data combine to drive the cost of nearly everything that humans make to nothing. And when that happens, when nearly all processes have been automated, and when nearly all things are available to everyone for free, for the first time in history, you have an economy of abundance, where infinite demands are met with infinite resources. Now, obviously, there's no shortage of objections that you could raise um, against this picture of the world. But I actually want to skip over the questions of whether this is technologically and scientifically possible because, again, to me, the most interesting aspect of the theory is not its technological Star Trek side, but its political economy side. And I think it's telling that some of the most vociferous objections to post-scarcity haven't been on the grounds of technological infeasibility, but on the grounds of economic impracticability. That is to say, not that you couldn't come up with the technology to do this, but that if you did do that, you would be shooting yourself in the foot because you would never be able to make the economy function. So, what is the political economy of post-scarcity? Well, essentially, what the theory is proposing is some kind of techno-vision of communism. Proponents of post-scarcity envision a future where both the cost and the price of the products we consume fall drastically. As it gets easier to produce things and cheaper to buy things, people spend less and less of their time working until basically work becomes optional altogether. If you can even speak of this vision in economic terms, it would be an economy that is based on something other than purchasing power. An economy of reputation or social standing or karma points or a social media-like economy that trades in followers. But whatever it is, the point is that it will not be an economy where you work so that you can make money so that you can purchase stuff. There will be very little work to do and stuff will be freely available to everyone anyway. The political economy question is, would this kind of an economy function or is something about this picture going deeply against the grain of human nature? The most Intuitive objection that critics have raised here is that if you gave people the option of not working to secure their means of living, then nobody would work at all. Human progress would terminate and society would grind to a halt. The idea here seems to be something like work is by its very nature something that you don't do unless you have an economic incentive to do it. And I don't know about you, but for me, this runs counter to basically all my experience as a human being. Um, you know, nobody's paying me to produce this podcast. No one pays me for my painting either. In fact, 
Both of these things take an incredible amount of time, effort, energy, and thought. And yes, even money. Money that I make at a day job, which I then pour into my art practice. So it just isn't my experience that given the choice, people would do nothing all day long. Proponents of post-scarcity like to cite the example of Wikipedia. Wikipedia is this massive, coordinated and cooperative project built by millions of man-hours that are volunteered. People write articles for Wikipedia simply because they either want to be part of that community or because they're interested in the subject matter or because they're retired and they want something to do with their time. And you don't have to reach for the example of Wikipedia either. Think of all those careers that people enter into which they would never have chosen for the money alone. Teachers, social workers, commercial air pilots, even architects could have all done a lot better if they had gone into finance or corporate law. And yet here they are willing to take a significant paycheck reduction just to work on something that they love. This isn't even to mention all the hobbies, the passion projects, and the true callings that people devote themselves to outside of their regular work hours because they know that no one will ever compensate them for the things that they love, many of which can and do make the world a better place. There is a major hole in the argument that you need remuneration to incentivize people to do useful work. And that hole is the fact that the economy that we have now does not in fact incentivize the optimal use of people's time and energy. Think of it this way. Janitors, theoretical physicists, and poets are all infinitely more useful to society than hedge fund managers. And yet the hedge fund manager gets compensated two to three hundred times more. There's this persistent feeling out there that only the things that people pay you money for matter. Those are the only things that are useful. But if you're paying attention, it's usually the other way around. There are so many jobs in our economy right now which are paid that do absolutely nothing for anyone or actually make the world a worse place to be in. Things like finance, things like real estate brokers or accountants. These are professions that bring absolutely no utility but which get compensated, often significantly, because there is no correspondence in our economy between what is useful to humanity and what the economy rewards. Seen clearly, the real question isn't, will people still do useful things if they don't have to work for a living, but how is it that they continue to do useful things when they do have to work for a living? How is it that here and there people still manage to do useful work in this world that believes the only honorable profession is business? That's the true mystery. So no, I'm not at all concerned that people will stop doing useful things if they no longer have to work for a living. Make no mistake, in today's day and age, it's the remuneration-based economy that is the biggest obstacle to human progress. Now, there's a subspecies of this objection which is specific to making all data freely available. The argument goes that if you were to take away copyright law, if you were to take away patent law, if you were to make all data in the world freely available for everyone to use and build on as they please, then you'd just be shooting yourself in the foot because the promise of cashing out on a patent or a copyright is what incentivizes people to produce new research. 
all I can say to this is I don't think the people that make this argument have ever met a scientist, a thinker, or an artist. Generally speaking, what distinguishes these people is that they are driven by the work itself. The desire to do a good job, to find out something new, to create something valuable. Often the rewards of patent law and copyright don't go to them anyway. They go to some employer or some investor, people that don't actually produce anything. But I don't know anyone who's actually involved in creative production itself that's motivated by copyright. The only thing that they need to do their work is a stable source of income and a comfortable living, and that's a dignity that they and others deserve simply because of the fact that they are human beings. For this reason, many proponents of post-scarcity are also proponents of something called the UBI, the Universal Basic Income, which is kind of a monthly salary that all citizens get paid for by tax dollars, completely irrespective of whether or not they are doing work and what kind of work they are doing. And the thinking is that if you can guarantee everyone on earth a safe and comfortable living through the UBI and then remove the restrictions of patents and copyright laws, then suddenly people would no longer have to worry about working a day job just to pay the bills, and they could concentrate on whatever it is that makes them tick, their passions, their aptitudes, their intellect, unleashing a new renaissance of art and technology. Okay. There's a lot more that we can say about an economy that runs on liberating the passions and the talents of human beings. And Certainly, there's a lot more that you can say about the technological feasibility of some of the visioning behind post-scarcity. But for now, I want to move on to degrowth. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? That was Greta Thunberg speaking at the 2019 UN Climate Summit. If post-scarcity questions the fundamental economic assumption that we live in a world of scarce resources, degrowth questions another fundamental assumption, which is that economic growth is always a good thing. And on the face of it, why wouldn't you want more wealth, more productivity, more jobs, more stuff? It's a proposition so intuitive that classical economics basically has never questioned it. And herein lies the problem. Both the principle that growth is always good and the principle that we talked about earlier that we live in a world of scarce resources are so basic to the way we see the world today that no one seems to have noticed a fundamental problem, which is that when you lay them side by side, they actually contradict one another. And when you take a moment to think about this, it is obvious, right? I mean, how can economic growth always be good if you live in a world of scarce resources. Someday, won't you just reach the point where you outgrow your resources? To quote filmmaker Jeff Gibbs, infinite growth on a finite planet is called suicide. Where this gets interesting is that this critique applies not only to classical economics, but also to post-scarcity. 
Remember that post-scarcity believes that the limit to our economic and human development is the inefficiency of our own technology and legal system. The inefficiency of an internal combustion engine which creates negative externalities like climate change. The inefficiencies of patents and intellectual property law which make data artificially scarce when it naturally wants to be free. The vision of post-scarcity is that with a combination of technological advancement and political will, we can overcome these limits and enter an era of inconceivable productivity and growth. Degrowth thinks that this is naive. For degrowth, the limits to our economic and human development are not logistical, they're not legal, and they're not even technological. What they are is theoretical. Degrowth paints a picture of a world where nature is parsimonious and cannot be fooled. A world where you cannot extract from nature more than it takes back from you. This view of nature was actually perfectly encapsulated much earlier in a completely different political context. In a 1934 essay called The First Tragedy of Socialism, the Soviet novelist Andrei Platonov says, quote, The situation between technology and nature is a tragic one. The aim of technology is, give me a place to stand and I will move the world. But the construction of nature is such that it does not like to be beaten. One can move the world by taking up the lever with the required moment, but one must lose so much along the way and while the long lever is turning that, in practice, the victory is useless. End quote. I first encountered this essay in the book Molecular Red by the theorist Mackenzie Wark. In Wark's version, the essay ends on another passage which I was not able to find anywhere in the original Russian text. I'm not sure where Wark got this, but I want to read it because it's just so powerful. Quote, The ancient life on the surface of nature could still obtain what it needed from the waste and excretions of elemental forces and substances but we are making our way inside the world, and in response, it is pressing down upon us with equivalent force." End quote. So this is the critique of degrowth. It's a critique that, when applied to post-scarcity, denies the fundamental premise, which is that a combination of technological advancement and political will is enough to get us to a world of abundance. We don't live in a world of abundance, and we never will. And when applied to mainstream economics, this critique is even more devastating because it says that the two fundamental presuppositions of mainstream economics, that we live in a world of scarcity and that all economies can and should continue to grow forever, are inconsistent with themselves. This by itself is devastating enough, but degrowth's critique of mainstream economics does not end there. Perhaps equally important is the idea that the metrics that we use to measure the health of an economy are poor measures of the health of an economy. And the metric that they have in mind here is GDP. I want to read a quote from Georgios Kallis, who is one of the most visible proponents of degrowth. This is from his 2018 book simply titled Degrowth. Quote, GDP is a bad measure of welfare. It counts costs as benefits. For example, building a prison or cleaning a contaminated river increases GDP. And it does not estimate unpaid work or unpaid damages. 
For example, if you clean your own house, GDP stays the same. If you pay a cleaner to do it, it increases. End quote. The problem with GDP is that it only cares about one thing, whether or not an activity was remunerated. If that activity was harmful or a cost that society has to pay, such as cleaning up a contaminated river, that's good for GDP. If an activity was beneficial but unremunerated, such as you cleaning your home, GDP doesn't care. So from the standpoint of GDP, the best thing that you can do for the economy is to dump some toxic sludge into the nearest river or trash your own house and then pay somebody to clean up your mess. This makes perfect sense under certain interpretations of mainstream economics, but it's obviously absurd from a social perspective. Furthermore, GDP in no way measures intangible social goods such as happiness and quality of life, so it should be easy to imagine a scenario where you decrease the costs of living on this planet, i.e. GDP, while increasing those intangible social benefits that GDP doesn't measure, such as happiness, quality of life, dignity, fulfillment, etc. This doesn't mean that your goal, necessarily, is to lower GDP. Rather, a decrease in GDP is something that proponents of degrowth believe will happen naturally if you structure your economy the right way. Here again is Kallus. Quote, To be clear, degrowth is not negative growth. The goal of degrowth is not to make GDP growth negative. There is a name for that, recession, or, when prolonged, depression. In economics terms, degrowth refers to a trajectory where the throughput, that is the energy, materials, and waste flows of an economy, decreases while welfare or well-being improves. The hypothesis is that degrowing throughput will in all likelihood come with degrowing output, and that these can only be outcomes of a social transformation in an egalitarian direction. End quote. The last line is the key to the whole thing. These can only be outcomes of a social transformation in an egalitarian direction. The slogan of degrowth that you hear most often is shrink the economy increase welfare, or decrease standard of living, increase quality of life. And this is only possible if you increase equality. The idea is that we already produce way more stuff than we need. It's just that all of that stuff is captured at the top of the economy by a few very rich people. This means that all poverty on the planet is artificial. We could end it tomorrow simply by distributing the stuff that we already have a little bit more fairly. We have what we need to feed the hungry and shelter the homeless. We just don't do it because the Cokes and the Bezoses of the world have managed to keep it all for themselves. The gambit of degrowth is that if you were to do that, if you were to distribute the wealth that we already have more evenly so that everyone has a life of dignity and financial security, you would find that we have a whole lot left over that it turns out we didn't need at all. Decreased standard of living increase quality of life. So, how do you do that? What is degrowth's positive vision for a more equitable society? Well, here unfortunately we hit the limit of my understanding of degrowth. 
I'm mostly familiar with the movement as a critique, but its literature of positive, constructive proposals for what we should be moving towards is pretty vast and I'm not adequately familiar with it. Much of it concerns reconstructing communities and economies around the local scale. Local foods, local goods, local people offering services to other locals. Some envision these local economies structured around socialist or anarchist lines, while others imagine a post-growth capitalism where for-profit production continues but at a much smaller scale. The images that come to my mind are small, largely self-sufficient communities where everybody knows each other and everyone chips in with the necessary labor. It actually sounds rather nice, and I'm sure that someone more knowledgeable about degrowth would chafe at this super simplistic description, but again, I'm not qualified to talk about the technical stuff. All I know are the platitudes. Stop population explosion. Consume less, enjoy life more. Redistribute stuff. And of course, shrink the economy, increase quality of life. No matter what that stuff may mean to you, the point is none of it is possible unless you increase equality. Okay, to try to tie all of this together, I want to end this episode on a pretty cool schema developed by Peter Fraze, who's an editor at Jacobin Magazine. In 2016, Fraze wrote a book called Four Futures, in which he kind of takes a survey of how different sci-fi authors have imagined our world developing from here. And I really recommend this book. It took me all of like three hours to read. It's accessible, it's fun, and there's a lot of really deep thinking that goes into it. In the book, Fraze categorizes the futures that different sci-fi authors have seen along two different axes. A future can either be egalitarian or hierarchical, and a future can be one of abundance or scarcity. When you combine those possibilities, you get four types or classes of sci-fi futures. There's equality and abundance, which Fraze calls communism, hierarchy and abundance, which he calls rentism, equality and scarcity, which he calls socialism, and hierarchy and scarcity, which he calls exterminism. The reason I bring this up is that when you look at this schema, it's obvious that post-scarcity is the future that Fraze calls communism, which is equality and abundance, while degrowth is the future that he calls socialism that is, equality and scarcity. What this means is that, although degrowth and post-scarcity disagree fundamentally on whether we live in a world of abundance or scarcity, one thing they agree on is that either way what we need is a world of equality. Because the fact is, we cannot or do not yet know which of these worlds we live in. We don't know whether our world is one of abundance or scarcity. In a sense, we kind of have to wait until we get there to find out, but that's not really the point. The point is that whichever of these worlds it turns out we inhabit, either way, we need to meet that world with more equality. Because, for example, if it turns out that we live in a world of abundance, that abundance will do humanity no good if it's all captured at the top of the economy in the hands of the powerful few. This has been borne out by the experience of the last few decades where, since 1980, the American economy has continued to grow and expand. But almost all of that wealth was captured by the top 10 or even the top 1%. 
the benefits of that growth have failed to improve the lives of the vast majority of Americans, leading to the despair, anger, and hopelessness that we see all around us today. That's why central to the program of post-scarcity is freeing up information so that it can be used by everybody and instituting a UBI so that people can focus on work that is meaningful and useful instead of wasting their lives in dead-end jobs that are useless to humanity or occupations that are actually harmful. And if it turns out that we live in a world of scarcity, then we need equality all the more. Because then it will be existentially important that we ramp down our economy, and the only way to do that without starving people is to distribute what we have more equitably. This point is painfully underscored by the two hierarchical futures that Freys imagines. The future of hierarchy and scarcity he calls exterminism. That's a future where the 1% essentially gang up on the 99% and either through neglect or through direct hostile action start to cull the excess population. Fraze actually argues that this isn't too far from the attitude that many of the 1% have today, who are perfectly happy to let millions of Americans languish without proper health care or rot in prison for minor drug offenses and preventable crimes related to poverty. But I think in some ways the most interesting scenario that Fraze paints is the one that he calls rentism, which is hierarchy plus abundance. In a certain sense, that's the world we live in today. Or at least that's the world we think we live in today. Because despite all of our foreboding about an ecological catastrophe waiting for us in the future, we are acting as if right now we live in a world of abundance. Our economy is pumping out products and using up resources as if there were no limit to human expansion. And this isn't an accident. This is in perfect keeping with the principle of mainstream economics that says that in order to have a healthy economy, that economy must always grow. So let's table for a moment the question of the looming ecological catastrophe. Let's assume for a moment that classical economics is right, that the economy can just keep growing forever. And ask yourself, has that world of abundance helped us? Do we live right now in a world where the abundance that we assume we have is helping people? I think it's clear that the answer is no. I think it's clear that it doesn't matter how much abundance we have today or how much abundance we will discover in the future. Because as long as we have the economic and political system that we have today, a system that enjoys support from conservatives and most liberals alike, that abundance will always be captured by the few. What this means is something very simple. We don't know yet whether or not we live in a world of abundance. But it turns out that that's irrelevant. What this detour into the science fictional and the fantastical has shown is that we have been asking the wrong question. The question we should be asking ourselves is neither ecological nor scientific, but political. 
Because whether we live in a world of abundance or a world of scarcity, what we need is a world of equality. Real, practical, tangible, non-theoretical economic justice. Because until we have that, this, this mess, this horrible present that you see all around us today, this fucked up cornucopia of hierarchy, resentment, and useless abundance is going to be the best of all possible worlds. On the flip side of the coin, what this means is that we do not have to wait for the scientists, the engineers, or the tech bros of Silicon Valley to save us. They're not going to save us. Our problems are not technical, but political. Not technocratic, but democratic. This is the bright spot that speculations on the future leave us with. All of our problems are fundamentally political, and the solutions must be also. And what that means is that you don't need a science degree to be part of that solution. Whew. That's all I got for today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. It was a kind of weird one for me. Um, and in the episodes coming up, I look forward to getting back a little bit to the terrain that I feel most comfortable with and think a little bit more about the role of art and how it can change, how it can be effective, what it can do in the years to come. Thank you very much for joining me. I hope you'll tune in next time. Until then, I will leave you with clarinetist Luis Rossi performing Weber's Concertino for clarinet. It's a special treat to be able to share this music with you today. It's used with the permission of the artist himself, off his upcoming CD, Weber, Strauss, Atewartua. More information in the episode description.